I'm Ray Hanania. I'm Bill Lipinski. And this is Two Guys on Politics. And this is a new one for Bill and I because uh, we're streaming this live on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash Two Guys on Politics. And hopefully, uh, whether you watch us here now live or whether you're watching us later on, um, we hope you enjoy this program. Our website is twoguysonpolitics.com, and the podcast is available at iTunes, Spotify, and all the major uh, podcasting sites. Um, Bill, did you get a chance? I- I'm sure you watched President Biden this past uh, uh, on Wednesday when he gave his uh, speech uh, to the American people, marking his 100th or his one year anniversary, which was actually today is the 100th anniversary, but he did it the day before. What did you think of uh, Biden's overall presentation? Not issues. Well, first of all, I was amazed at how long he held the press conference. That's number one. I think it's the longest press conference in the history of presidential press conferences. Uh, Number two, uh, if he was trying to demonstrate that he had the stamina uh, and the physical strength to stand up behind the podium for almost two hours, he managed to do that. Now, I think Joe Biden is a very nice man. Uh, I have nothing against him personally. Uh, I have a number of things against some of his policies. Uh, but the early part of his press conference seems to me he received a lot of uh, relatively easy questions from the reporters. Uh, yeah, when, when I was watching it, I marked down how uh, he, you know, I was marking down each question. And I noticed that what he was doing was he'd read, he'd look down to the right um, and actually it'd be his left. He'd look down to the left of the podium in his hand and he'd read the name of a reporter. And then he'd look up and the reporter would stand up. He did that 11 times during the first 80 minutes of this 153 minute press conference. So it's, uh, you know, doing it uh, uh, 11 times. That was the bulk of his press conference too. So, but, and, and the beginning of his, his press conference, I think, didn't it deal with his issues, didn't it? The things that he felt were important, it seemed like. Yes, it definitely did. It gave him an opportunity to uh, talk about his issues uh, and the things that uh, he did right and some of the things he still wants to do and some of the things that the obstruction Republicans have prevented him from doing. Yeah, and then uh, there were some reporters, as you noted, that uh, uh, he took a lot of questions. It was 153 minutes. That's a long time. Um, when you uh, went through the... Uh, um, he started hearing people calling from the back, you know, the back of the press conference room, you know, yelling kind of, Hey, we want to ask questions. And he did take some questions from some reporters, but he was kind of curt with them. He was quick and fast in responding. Some of the questions were really, you know, I thought a little disrespectful, like the one from Newsmax asking him, what did he think that people felt that maybe he wasn't completely there, that there was some, uh, issues of uh, memory or mental capacity. And I thought that was really kind of an inappropriate question to ask at a press conference, I thought. I agree very definitely. 
I thought he handled uh, the vast majority of the questions uh, very well, in fact, better than I expected him uh, to handle them. Uh, even the ones that uh, were ones that were sort of gotcha, right. uh, you know, questions that the news media often uh, throws out to individuals who they are not supporting. Right. Yeah, he didn't, uh, he didn't engage. He didn't engage the way uh, Trump would have, you know, no, no. fighting with yeah. the reporter who asked them. If some reporter had asked President Trump, are you full? There are people who think that you're crazy. He would have gone nuts. Right. And made oh, a story about that question. But I think you're right. I think overall, when I think about the press conference that he did, he handled handled it very well. And uh, and actually, I, I let me just correct. It was one hour and 53 minutes. Okay. So uh, one hour and 53 minutes, under two hours, not a 153 minutes. But I thought he did pretty well. I thought uh, he held back. He didn't react to the provocative questions. He got his agenda out, I thought. Um, but I, he did make a few mistakes, I think. Minor well, stuff. A couple of mistakes he made was uh, not emphasizing the first bill that he got passed with bipartisan support. And that was the money that was put out to people during the height of the uh, covert uh, infection that was going around. This right. was done very early in his administration and it had definitely had bipartisan support. He didn't emphasize that at all, nor did he really emphasize his infrastructure bill, which had bipartisan support also. Uh, which I was surprised at. I've taken a lot of credit for being the bipartisan guy uh, that he wanted to be during the course of the campaign. Uh, but he didn't take advantage of that. Really, as he did down in Atlanta, uh, being rather negative in regards to uh, the lack of cooperation uh, he's getting from the, the Republicans. It seems like he felt that uh, because he had been in the Senate for all those years, the Republicans were going to abandon their principles, their ideas, and support whatever Joe wanted. And it hasn't worked out that way. And I don't think he should have thought it was going to work out that way. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I, I think that uh, he did. I think the I think those questions were kind of anticipated the first 11, because why would you just read the names? And that means the reporter knew that they were going to be called on. And they probably even thought about the questions. The questions weren't softball. They were a little critical, but they were certainly not critical the way they might have been or have been in the past with uh, uh, Trump or even some other presidents. I thought they were pretty fair questions, but these were questions that Biden wanted. He wanted to be able to say, hey, uh, I." he started out by saying in his presentation, he said, look at all the things we've done. The economy is good. You know, we got, uh, what, 70 percent or plus of the American people vaccinated. Um, nobody believed we could do that. It kind of takes away from the, the perception that when he said, you know, we're going to have everybody vaccinated by July 1st. And then he said, you know, I, we, we expected to do more. We're getting there. It's a moving process. So we made a pretty good argument. But at the same time, I thought that, uh, you know, it looked too orchestrated. And even though I thought he looked good, um, the one question he couldn't answer with any uh, reasoned certainty, I felt, or convincing certainty was, uh, you promised to 
end the polarization and bring both sides together. And even you could even just from the press conference, it was clear there were two groups of reporters, the ones on his list and the rest of them that were in the press conference room. Well, Nobody's true. together. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I don't, you know, they were questions that he should have been able to hit every one of them out of the ballpark. I think he handled the questions well, right. but I don't think he really gained very much by it whatsoever. Like I mentioned before, he he didn't really emphasize the uh, covert bill, and he didn't emphasize the uh, bill on the infrastructure, which he should have, uh, because he should take credit for those. Uh, I the the question that I thought he was very abrupt on was the one where he was asked, "Why have you pulled the Democratic Party so far to the left?" Right. Uh, and he really didn't answer that question at all. And I think that's because he knows that instead of being the person that's been trying to bring Americans together, he's been following too much of the dictates and the wishes of the very liberal progressive wing of the Democratic Party. And that's really what has helped hurt him considerably. And I believe that's why his rating has dropped month after month after month. But isn't it normal, though, for a president's ratings to kind of drop in those first two years? I mean, isn't that the reason why in the midterm elections where we're at, where we're approaching now uh, this year, that presidents tend to lose control of the House and the Senate? That's I mean, very true. The popularity of the president normally drops, but not as extensively as his has dropped. And yes, normally uh, the people in power uh, wind up losing uh, the House of Representatives in the midterm elections, uh, but not quite to the degree it's anticipated the Democrats are gonna lose the House of Representatives this time around. I mean, people are really talking almost about a landslide and people are also believing that very possibly the Democrats will lose control of the Senate. Uh, and of course they wouldn't have control of the Senate if they hadn't won those two special elections in Georgia, which really were upsets. And a lot of people believe the reason they lost those was because Trump came in and campaigned uh, for the two Republican candidates and he hurt them very much. Yeah, he. I, I think Trump was his own worst enemy. I, I think that uh, he had some good policies, but I think that uh, he couldn't control his own anger and emotions and pettiness. I, I wanna go back to that Newsmax question. His and because this is a good example of how Biden, the master diplomat, didn't take the bait. The reporter from Newsmax, which is that TV, right, you know, conservative uh, uh, news uh, cable TV program, the reporter said, hey, 49% of registered voters disagreed with the statement that Joe Biden is mentally fit. Why do, you, why do so many suppose such profound concerns about your cognitive fitness? Now, that was a very bad question, I thought. Why bring it up? Instead of taking it the way Trump might have, uh, Biden's answer was, I have no idea. And then he went on to the next right. person. And I yeah. give him credit for that. Well, but by the same token, he gave uh, credence to the fact that, you know, his mental ability may not be as high as it should be as president of the United States, because he really didn't give any explanation for that. He just moved on. Right. Well, I mean, listen, everybody, there's every politician. Isn't it true? Do you think every politician makes a mistake? Every oh, reporter, I, I've said stuff that I've been wrong about. I try to correct it. We do that. You know, sure. we try to correct our mistakes. And that's more important when you correct it. 
I don't think Trump ever corrected a mistake. I think what he did was try to just he ever made one. <laughs> That's what I mean. I think he he just would try to justify it. So I think overall, if 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 I were to give Biden a grade for his press conference, I'd probably give him a B. I, oh, I, I think, think I could give him a B also, very definitely. Yes. Yeah, I, I think it was a positive presentation. I think it reinforced his followers and supporters and made, and I think it made him look good. Um, but I think I, I give him a C on the one big issue that I think he dropped the ball on. And I think that was that issue of Russia and Ukraine. Don't you think? Oh, I think I'd give him an F on that one. I thought that was absolutely terrible uh, to talk about a big incursion and a slight incursion. Uh, I can imagine those poor people in the Ukraine, uh, had heart attacks when they heard him talk about that. That was a terrible, terrible mistake on his part. We have enough trouble with American credibility with our allies and our enemies ever since we walked out of Afghanistan in such a chaotic way. Right. And for him to make the statement he made, now I thought that was a terrible, terrible blunder. Yeah, I, he was, uh, um, I, I think he referred to, oh, he gave the impression, his words, he never completed sentences because I tried to read it to find out what he actually said. And uh, he kind of bantered a little bit rather than directly answering it. But he did say that, oh, if there's a minor incursion, you know, uh, we might do something different. We'll look at what we're going to do. And the reporter then came back, a reporter, I think from Reuters, came back and said, um, aren't you suggesting that isn't that kind of like saying that you're not going to do anything? that you said that Russia would be held accountable if they invade. And now you're saying it depends on, you know, how they invade uh, a minor incursion versus a significant incursion. I, I, I saw that, uh, that the Ukraine officials, that officials in the Ukraine today criticized him for basically saying, Russia, if you want to invade and it's minor, go ahead and do it. Yeah, and that's, I, he walked it back, and the White House walked it back yes. uh, by saying that he was talking about an incursion. He wasn't talking about a military incursion. He was talking about, you know, some cyber, you know, right. with their computers and things like that. And then he also started to talk about the fact that, well, you know, if it's only a minor thing, it's going to be very difficult to get the European nations to go along with any strong sanctions. We right. don't talk about that stuff in public. That yeah. stuff can be decided, you know, between nations, behind the scenes. It, it demonstrated that he doesn't really have a united effort with the other European countries on the sanctions. If Russia moves into the Ukraine, what they are going to do as far as, you know, he talks about terrific sanctions going to be put on them. It's really going to hurt them. It's going to hurt us. It's going to hurt the Europeans. But I don't think he has, you know, the support of all the European nations. And I think primarily Germany is very hesitant to do so because they get so much oil, so much gas out of Russia. Yeah, I, I, I think that uh, that was a blunder. And uh, you, I think you were tougher on him than maybe I probably should. I gave him a D um, because it was not because it was a great answer, but because it was a confusing answer. And uh, I don't I, I don't know if he I don't think he meant to say that, as you pointed out, they were walking it back a little bit that he's talking about cyber attacks. You know, uh, if it's a you know, minor incursion, 
I think he's thinking, oh, yeah, if they go after him, you know, by attacking their computers. But he never explained that properly. Oh, but that's, go ahead. No, I was going to say that feeds into the, the question that the guy at Newsmax asked then. And instead of asking the question, Newsmax should have come back and said, I don't understand your answer. Are you going to invade? Are you going to stand up to Russia and go to war with Russia if they cross the border militarily, even if it's a minor crossing? Or is that what you're saying? Instead of doing that, you know, they kind of both, I think, both sides. That comes from anger, doesn't it? And emotion and almost a hatred of each other. We, we don't deal with the issue. We're dealing with the person. Well, I, you know, I, I just, uh, I really, for the life of me, cannot understand how the president of the United States could have gotten himself into a situation such as that. Yeah. Uh, at one point, answering that question, he also said that he was convinced that Russia was going to invade. But then a, a couple of minutes later, he said he wasn't sure that Putin had made up his mind if he was going to invade or not. Well, Putin is the guy that has to decide if he's going to invade or not. Biden says he hasn't made up his mind, but in Biden's mind, Putin is going to invade. That made no sense at all. That, that portion of the press conference, I still say he gets an F on. I give him an overall B because he stood up. He showed he had stamina. He had answered a lot of questions. Some of them were hostile. Uh, but that one portion was really, I think, very, very harmful of course, I'm very concerned about, uh, you know, China and Russia and Tehran, uh, North Korea, all of them looking at us and seeing us as being appeasers at the present time. And I mean the USA. Uh, and I'm afraid of them taking uh, liberties in numerous other places around the globe. And I don't think he did anything to deter that from happening. Yeah. And uh, I think that, uh, uh, well, of course, this was his first big press conference. I heard somebody say, in 10 months. I think it was like the first uh, big press conference in 10 months. And, um, you know, that's a long time not sure. to have a press conference. And I think he's been criticized for that. Um, but he should have been, you had 10 months to plan out, plan for this, right? Um, it should have been, a, he, he, I don't think his message was as clear as it could have been, but you're right. He came across far better than I expected. Yes. Um, and I think the opposition made themselves look bad, you know, with some of their really stupid questions. So he actually benefited from that. But the Ukraine thing, I'm worried about it because as you and I have talked about in our podcast before, you need to make you need to make it clear to Russia that we are ready to stand up militarily if you cross into the Ukraine. That has to be the ultimate uh, last resort position that we will take. But when you take that off the table by not addressing it, which well, and, he took off the table already. Yes. And your yeah, last, yeah. and your last, and your last option now is, Hey, we might, uh, it'll be terrible, severe sanctions. If I'm Putin, I'm thinking, okay, I'm going to invade Ukraine. And the worst thing that's going to happen that could happen is I'll have severe sanctions. I'm already being sanctioned. Right. No, he is being, absolutely. And he's a megalomaniac millionaire anyway. He's one of the oligarchs. He's billions and billions this guy has. What does he care? Because the sanctions are going to hurt the people, not him. And the yeah, people well, have no voice. 
our, our uh, sanctions has really deterred him. He's moved troops now into uh, Belarus, which is north of uh, Ukraine. So he can attack them right directly from Russia. He can attack them from Belarus also, because Belarus, for all practical uh, circumstances, is a satellite already of uh, you know Russia. Uh, and he did that just in the last couple of days, moved troops in there. And he's, he's, you know, he went into, uh, what is it? Uh, Kazakhstan. The Kazakh, Kazakhstan. Yeah, he moved troops in there to put down a, a rebellion against, uh, you know, there were some terrorists talking about overthrowing the government there. Well, so that's what they said. Yeah. yeah. He sent troops in there to put down that rebellion against that fine leader. Yeah. And they have... Uh, uh, the interesting thing that uh, after the breakup of the Soviet Union, they created their own NATO. I think it's called the CSTO. I, I don't know the exact name for it, but um, the Kazakhstan is part of that. And they called in uh, Russia on the basis of the president of Kazakhstan. He issued a shoot to kill order the way Daly did back in the 1968, I think, at the convention. I don't remember that. <laughs> Were you at that convention, by the way? No, no. I was just a plain ordinary citizen in those days. Yeah, I wasn't a reporter. Like I am once again now. Yeah, and sometimes it's better to be just a plain ordinary citizen. But uh, um, he is uh, supporting the president of Kazakhstan and pushing that. We haven't done anything about that. What's the difference between the Ukraine and Kazakhstan? We're allowing the Russians to go in there to support the president in Kazakhstan and uh, to kill all these people and do all kinds of stuff. And uh, we're, we're making we're drawing a weak line at the Ukraine. Um, and it just seems overall policy is bad. So I, I don't one, know. One thing. Yeah. One quick thing there. When the Berlin Wall fell down, when the Soviet Union collapsed, there was an arrangement with the. Uh, uh, the uh, Uranians that they would give up their nuclear weapons if the Russians would promise, you know, never to invade them, right. never try to bring them back into be part of Russia. Uh, so there's a document, you know, that Russia signed along those lines. I don't know what they did with uh, the other place at all. Well, one of the newspapers I write for is the uh, Arab News in uh, Saudi Arabia, Dubai, London, uh, Paris, Tokyo. They got a big operation. And uh, and I work and I do some writing for him here in the U.S. And the story that I got out of it, out of one hour and 53 minutes, there was 30 seconds on Yemen and the Houthis uh -huh. and 15 seconds on Iran, basically saying that, yeah, with the Houthis, uh, Trump uh, designated them as a terrorist organization. And when Biden came in, he removed that designation from the Houthis, which are these terrorist rebels in Yemen that are trying to disrupt the entire Gulf. And uh, when he was asked about that, his response was uh, four words, I think, to the effect that uh, I'm, I'm giving it consideration to re-designate them as a terrorist organization. To me, that, that showed me that when they tried to push him into international issues, he wanted to stay focused that his real mission was to get Americans to understand that he, he's really focused on uh, the coronavirus, the economy, and he wants them to believe that, look at what I've done. As in my first year, he said he was better done more than any other 
president, I think he said during his first year. So that told me that this was a politically orchestrated press conference from the beginning. Well, in all honesty, though, aren't they all politically orchestrated? I, I guess they are. But you'd think once in a while that somebody would just get up there and just tell us the truth, right? And be honest. All right. Well, I, anything- he's telling us the truth as he sees it. <laughs> anything else on uh, Biden's speech or the Ukraine? Uh, we A couple other topics we can talk about. Yeah, um, go ahead and talk about a few other things. All right. The other one is the uh, uh, voting rights uh, push. To uh, they, they call it the Voting Rights Act of 2022. And the way it's being stalled, at least by the media, is that right now voters are being oppressed, their, their voting rights are being suppressed. And we just came out of an election where, how many was it? 159 million people voted, the highest number of people that have ever voted in the country, ever. Ninety-four percent of eligible voters. Not eligible, eligible, registered, registered voters. Ninety-four percent of registered voters voted in that election, and uh, there's a concern about voting rights. What is that's politics, right? This is about Democratic states versus Republicans. Well, in uh, in 2012. 53% 53% of registered voters voted in the presidential election. Right. Uh, four years later, 2016, 64% allegedly voted. Right. And then this last presidential election, it jumps to 94% of, of registered, registered voters. voters. That is unbelievable. It and is- now we're just to, we're working on the uh, number of 169 million registered voters. And I think uh, 200 and 35 million uh, Americans who uh, qualify to vote and only 169 million of them are actually registered. That, that number concerns me. And I, you know, when I look back on that issue of the whole issue of voting in the 2020, November, 2020 election, Trump and Giuliani. Now I, I didn't always agree with Giuliani. I always thought he was too far to the right, but he did such a poor job of presenting the issue to the public. If they had just said, listen, folks, there are 169 million registered voters and you're telling me 95 million of them came out to vote. I've never heard of that number ever being reached in Chicago. 40 percent. Maybe I believe 60. If we look at the numbers, it's 60 percent, 50 percent. Ninety five is just unbelievable. It's incredible. That, that, that number cannot be correct. There's no, no doubt about it. There's uh, got to be something, right? It just, uh, it's disconcerting. I want to bring up one point here, though, sure. as long as we're talking about numbers. Uh, in this you know, voting rights bill that didn't get passed, uh, one thing that they wanted to uh, put into effect was that you could walk into a polling place on election day and say, I'm Ray Hanania, right. I want to vote. And they would have to let you vote. That right. day. Well, at the present time, there's 14 states in one district that right. has that law. Out of those 14 states, 13 out of 14 of them are Democratic, and the one district is Democratic also. Maybe that's where all those unexpected votes came from. Yeah, I think when you put the picture together, Trump got 74 million votes. Biden got 81 million, a little bit more. I mean, that's, that's a huge number. Oh, the is. total vote cast 155 million. I think it was actually a little higher. I'm just using the general numbers here. 
Um, it just and then 15, 14 and 15 states. They now, whenever I vote, I always present my ID. And it bothers me the more I learn about this Voting Rights Act that they're trying to eliminate that um, and make it easy for anybody. So I need a driver's license to drive a car. I need a license to go and I have to have an ID to go into a bar. I have to, you know what? Uh, well, now you have to have an ID card and show your vaccination in order to sit down at a restaurant and have dinner or lunch. Yeah, you have to have an ID to do that. But I could just walk off the street and claim, I could say, hey, I'm Bill Lipinski Absolutely. and I want to vote. And they can't ask me for an ID. That would bother me. It sounds like in the Democratic areas, I think that because they represent the urban areas where they're a lot more poor uh, and minority groups and foreign immigrant groups like, you know, Hispanics, Latinos, uh, some African-Americans. But although African-Americans are very strong voters, Hispanic yeah. voters often are not. They don't vote to their total potential. They don't register to vote, a lot of them. This is an opportunity for somebody that you could go up to and say, look, I know you didn't register to vote. We really need your vote. Let me walk you to the voting place. Go ahead and vote or just fill out this form and sign your name and I'll send it in for you. It just sounds like the whole process is being, you know, gerrymandered and screwed up. And well, I tell you, the thing that I dislike also are these drop boxes. I mean, you could have a box in your house and go around to your neighbors and say, here's a ballot. I'm going to make it easy for you. You vote this ballot and drop it right here into this box, and I'll take it down to the polling place for you. And yeah. of course, you can then look in the box and see if your candidate's carrying. If he is, fine. If he's not, well, maybe you lose some of those votes on the way down to the polling place. That drop box is a terrible thing, absolutely terrible. And another thing about this uh, uh, right to, uh, to vote act, None of this would apply in communities of 3,000 and less. Now, those would be in rural areas. And what are your rural areas or what? Mostly Republican. Republican. Yeah. But this law doesn't apply in those areas. Yeah, it's clearly intended to look in those Democratic areas where they have a lot of unregistered voters who don't want to vote or don't want to register because they're afraid maybe they have a relative that's uh, undocumented or illegal. So they stay away. Maybe for whatever reason, they don't register. Um, they uh, want to get these people to vote without have overcome that fear without actually having to register. It bothers me that they're weakening the registration process, because I think as an American, uh, I remember I turned 18. I registered to vote um, and I was really proud to cast my first vote. I, you know, and uh, I think that you have to make the effort to vote. It can't be just, uh, you know, uh, um, I feel like it or I don't feel like it. It's part of our process. And it seems like they're weakening the whole process with this. But they've turned it into a civil rights and racial issue. They yes, painted it as a civil rights issue. And it almost sounds like, well, what are you against civil rights that you don't support the Voting Rights Act? Well, I, no, I, there are provisions that I don't support, I think are wrong. Well, once again, I think that Biden tried to put too much stuff together. Uh, there are certain aspects of this that I could support, you could support, that I think the Republicans would have supported. Uh, but by throwing all these things that he did into this bill, 
it went down to defeat. I think the same thing is the problem with his bill back better bill. Last thing I want to say, though, here on the subject in regards to voting, uh, I'm very happy that Joe Biden was elected president of the United States. I don't really think that we could have taken another four years of that dictator, Donald Trump. Yeah, I listen, I think Trump was his worst enemy. Um, I voted for him back in uh, 2016 because I couldn't support Hillary Clinton. You know, I, I had differences with what she was doing and I thought, OK, I've seen Trump on TV. He seems like a smart guy. Let's take a chance. I don't think it worked out the way I had hoped it would work out. It did not work out. And I'm willing to give, and I voted for Biden in 2020, and I'm willing to give him a chance. And yet, I, and, and the thing that most intrigued me and got me to vote for him was his promise to bring everybody together. And I don't think he's done that. And no, I, I think that. Yeah, I think that's his biggest problem. So, you know, in what, 2024, I'm going to be looking for a new candidate, but I'm afraid I'm not going to have another choice. It might be Trump and Biden again. And that just means the suffering is going to go on for another what? Well, I think that there's a much greater chance of Trump being a Republican candidate than Biden being the Democratic candidate. Really? I doubt well, very seriously that Joe Biden will run for re-election. Uh, even though he said he was in his press well, conference. He said he was. That's, you know, I'm sure at that time in that place, you know, he was sure he was going to run. Right. But we're still almost three years away from that. Yeah. Uh, and he is up there in age. I mean, I, I remember when uh, your good friend, Mayor Byrne, endorsed Jimmy Carter. Yes. You know, on this day, at this time, in this place, I'm with Jimmy Carter. Yes, he did he say that. He was with Ted Kennedy. So. And then we asked her, you just... You just endorsed Ted Kennedy after you said last week you were going to support Jimmy Carter. He goes, last week was last week. I said that day I would support him. Right. And that was the fundraiser. He came out for a fundraiser that she had for herself. He was the big draw. Right. Oh. And she didn't want to turn that away. All right. Listen, fine. Let's uh, we've been. Uh, and again, for listeners, we obviously this is our first attempt at a uh, live stream of two guys on politics. Um, with former Congressman Bill Lipinski and myself, Ray Hanania. Uh, you, you may be watching this in uh, replay stream later on, but we do appreciate those who are watching us. Um, the fine, and we've kind of, we're over 36 minutes, so we don't want to go too long. But the last topic, and I, and I think you could help us understand this, what is the real issue about the filibuster? Well, the filibuster was put in place in order to protect the minority. The Senate, when it was created by the founders, was a place where they wanted people to come together to pass legislation that was consensus legislation. One of the most significant ways of doing that is by requiring a 60 vote minimum to pass certain pieces of legislation. Uh, it protects the minority, whether they're Democrats or they are Republicans. Now, I don't agree with the fact that one senator can stand up and say, I'm gonna filibuster. And until I tell you I'm not filibustering, you can't do anything else, okay? Right. I don't agree with that. I believe that if you're gonna filibuster, you have to get up, you have to keep the floor, you have to keep talking until you get tired or until you fall down uh, from not having enough strength to go on. But the filibuster, sh filibuster should be kept in place. It protects the minority. And I believe it protects the American people from some radical legislation. 
And, and I remember learning about the fill filibuster when I was a young kid watching Mr. Smith goes to Washington with Jimmy Stewart, I think it was. And he got up and filibustered and uh, to prevent something bad from happening. But you're basically saying that someone can get up and filibuster. But um, if 60 members of the Senate decide they want to stop it, they can stop it. That means that they would, in our case today, uh, the 49 uh, Democrats and the 49 Republicans, there'd have to be a nonpartisan effort to stop it. Right. And mm -hmm. so why would the Democrats get rid of it now when they have control and possibly are going to lose control of the House and the Senate in a year? I mean, it looks likely that they're going to lose control. Wouldn't they want as a minority party to have that filibuster? Why would they want to get rid of it now? You'll have to ask them. I don't think it's a smart move politically at all, uh, so I don't really understand it. But uh, I'm sure that they have their reasons for doing so. All right, Bill. Listen, thank you so much. Uh, and this is this is the first we. I think we may try to do this again sometime. But uh, of course, I always enjoy talking with you with all your background in Congress and, of course, in Chicago. We talk about many issues, but uh, this was a lot of fun. Thanks, Bill. And I think that we uh, tried to uh, give our honest opinion. And I don't think there was anything radical that you said or I said. Uh, uh, you know me. I'm not a radical. Too radical. I'm not too radical. All right. Good day. Thank you. All right. I'm Ray Hanania. I'm Bill Lipinski. And we will be back next week. Thank you, everybody, for listening. We appreciate it. We'll talk to you again.